Hey everybody, it is time to do the podcast. That's right. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Hustle is the Hack podcast. I am Pierre Hulsebus, and during this podcast, we're going to help you get your game on. That's right, your selling game. I'm going to help you identify, acquire, and retain the most valuable business asset you have today. What is that? It is a customer. That's right. Without them, nothing is going to happen. You just have a club of grumpy people. That's right. It's not a business. It's not fun. It's not good hanging out with those folks. I want to do that. You've got to have a reason, a purpose there, and that's to serve your customers. Nothing happens until you sell something, too. That's right. you got to get out there and sell some stuff. It all starts with the customers. Sadly, it comes to an end when you don't have any more customers. So he who dies with the most customers is the winner. Woohoo! How and why do I do this? Well, I have really no idea why I'm doing this, but how I do this is pretty clear. We take the latest innovation in business ideologies and ideas, methods and models at a pinch of my 30 years of sales, selling information technology experience and mix that all together in my patent pending Pierre stack of stuff, which you can freely read on my blog that's true hustle is the hack.com is the place and that's right we spit out all this amazing you know business analysis and advice and and give you all of that in the period of this podcast so we are concise and we're ready to go and you are on point if you're learning and loving this show Please share it uh, with your friends, Uh, like it, uh, subscribe, all the things that you can do to encourage others and share the share the love, share the love. That's right. Share the love. We're trying to grow this thing. So sit back, relax and enjoy this podcast. Hey, guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and. And how do you get to make it and, you know, what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. Hey, we're back. Thank you for uh, your kind time and attention today. Uh, 
we really appreciate it. Really do. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Anchor is a great, isn't it a great sponsor? It, thank you, Anchor, for helping me get this thing going here on the old, uh, the good old podcast. That's right. So uh, what is going on today is uh, we got a couple things on the, on the, um, oh, we turn our little uh, sound machine on and have a seat there in the sales cafe, which is where, um, where we're having your cup of joe, get your cup of coffee, and I'm I'm going to enjoy my cup of of, of coffee. And uh, today we're we're continuing uh, our last conversation that we had was really all about customer service, and uh, I'm going to continue down this path of customer service uh, because you know tis the season. So we're all one of the things about customer service. It is something that we all know and love uh, or hate, put it that way, uh, because, you know, we, we, we go out this time of year and we uh, participate in shopping and buying. And uh, so we get to experience the good, the bad, the ugly of customer experience. And so uh, last week we talked about skills that an individual person can develop. And today I want to talk about um, skills that the management team, or if you're running the show, operational leader, or however you want to call it, you know, what are some of the things that you can do uh, to get your game on, get your, get your help, help your people be the best they can be, help them truly reflect the values uh, that you have in terms of an awesome, you know, customer experience that you're trying to create. I just saw one before, um, before I got on here, I kind of followed Disney, a lot of stuff with Disney. There's it's, it's really interesting because Disney really is like one of the highest watermarks from a customer service. They consistently come in at a very high customer service and retention rate. And so, you know, you want to see how things go. Well, you kind of watch what they're doing. And if you've ever gone to a Disney property, you, you will experience that. It's a great experience, obviously. In fact, in many ways, they kind of pioneered the customer experience idea that it's not just a one-time thing, but it's a journey. And uh, the, the product is one thing that you're delivering, but it's also a big part of the context or the experience that you're having. And anyways, they, they had this, uh, not some great press this week. Somebody posted up a picture of uh, the uh, a little bowl of pasta that had, uh, you know, like rotini pastas in it, like maybe 20 of them. Uh, really, a, a three meatballs and a, a tiny dollop of marinara sauce, and that was twelve dollars. And it was served in a not so nice looking way, and in a in a styrofoam bowl. Like this is the kind of stuff that you got at lunch when you were, you know, a, a little kid. And uh, so they're selling this for twelve bucks. So people were a little like, "What? This is this is not what I expected." And so it goes up on social media and gets thousands of reactions. So that's not the thing you want to have, you know, happen. And and when you do a poor job and you're not meeting the expectation of the customer, well, that's the stuff that happens. That's the price you pay. That's the price you pay when customers uh, do not like the experience that you're giving them, uh, especially after you've set such high standards. And actually, that's one of our, our ideas today. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is providing first class training. So uh, customer service representatives, you know, the folks that are on that front line, frontline workers is another term that that's uh, kind of the state of the art term today, the frontline workers. 
Uh, those could be folks in the call center, bank tellers, uh, clerks that work in stores, uh, anybody that stands in front and talks to a customer one on one or, you know, answers the phone or goes out on premise to do an installation. These are our frontline workers and they represent your company. They represent the ideals of your company. And uh, so they're the front of any business, and it's critical to support them with the best training that you can give them, whether it's, you know, formal courses that are um, or, you know, just uh, just ongoing mentoring and coaching from experienced folks or a combination of different approaches. Uh, Do what you need to do to make sure that the staff feels confident and clear about how they do their jobs and improve that agent experience over time. Make sure that it's a worthwhile for them to feel like, you know, they're doing something, that they're making a difference, and that they're the most important part in many ways of your customer's experience. And, um, you know, their uh, dedication to customer satisfaction is really important. Those are ideals and kind of emotional kind of connections when you think of about ideas like um engagement and dedication and passion those are things that uh, that you want to hire people for when you're or looking to fill these kind of roles and uh, you know you want to coach people in that and then more importantly as a leader you want to show that same passion you want folks to emulate and follow your lead that's what a leader is and whether you're formally the boss or the manager or you're just one of the co um let's say a senior person in that uh, team uh, showing up every day and having that enthusiasm and energy around focusing on the customer's happiness and their uh, retention and all of that. You know, you want to provide that training. And uh, so, you know, train, train folks, you know, not investing in training is uh, like not winding a clock to save time. You know, a lot of companies feel like it's just too expensive. We don't want to provide training like that because it's just so expensive. It takes them out of the field. Uh, You know, a lot of organizations that aren't doing that, obviously it shines through. And, uh, you know, if if your business is something that you can execute that is just a formal, let's say, decision tree, and you just say, well, here's the customer script, you just read that. You know, if that's how you're executing customer service through scripts and and through bots and trying to deflect customers uh, away from actually engaging with people, well, you know, you're probably not long for this world. Actually, quite frankly, that those are the type of companies that that have the worst reputations when they're doing that kind of business. So you want to provide world class training for your frontline folks and uh, you want to take care of them, too. Hey, set some high standards. That's what I was saying here earlier about somebody like um, like uh, our friends at uh, Disney. You know, make sure the staff understands how valuable their role is and how seriously you take their uh, contribution and uh, all of the things that revolve around the customer service skill set that they're developing. So you set standards for what's expected and clear about why that matters for the staff. For example, maybe always courteous or positive and supportive. Those could be some very high standards. Like we're always courteous to customers. It doesn't matter how awful a customer is to us, but we are always courteous. And uh, I have seen it in action many, many times 
when uh, people are on an airplane, especially a high stress kind of situation, and they just are awful. Sometimes customers are just awful to the staff. And so, and uh, yet, um, you know, the brilliance of a senior, <laughs> a senior customer service person that can kind of turn it around in a sometimes a funny way and um, just be really nice, actually, and courteous because, you know, they're on stage. And so the only, you know, many people see how they interact with the, with the public. And so uh, when they're courteous and positive and supportive, uh, then, then things go well. You know, so set those kind of clear expectations that help staff members feel confident that they're doing their job well. So if you have some standards and people meet those standards, you want to reward them and help them become, you know, inspirational. So, I mean, um, to other folks, because that stuff is infectious, actually. It's really interesting how um, people's attitudes affect one another. And so if people are not uncourteous, they are not punctual, they are negative and not supportive, well, when all of those things happen and you allow that to occur, that sets an expectation that that's acceptable. And so, you know, you are on stage, so to speak, as a manager with those folks. And so you have to set those clear expectations. And when people meet those, you, you know, reinforce that. And, uh, you know, you have to live it. You have to live it. So you need to be a good example of that. You know, take, say, if you got customer difficult uh um, things, you know, then uh, I'll take those calls. You know, if you feel you need help, uh, send them to me and I'll, I'll show you how it works. Record those and, and, and re, re, uh, reintegrate those uh, back to your um, to your customers, you know, to your folks rather, not customers, but reiterate those back to the people and to show them and give them a really good example about what you are doing. You know, so uh, along the way, what you're going to want to do is number 13, have clear escalation pathways. And that's what I'm talking about. Inevitably, customer service teams come across customer questions and problems they can't solve on their own. Be prepared for that by formalizing and communicating the escalation plan for everybody's role. So, you know, you're you're empowering them to make decisions and you're empowering them to take care of customers. But uh, often that is, you know, on, you know, customers going to maybe have a unique problem or a unique situation and you want to take care of that customer. So, you know what, if you're the leader, escalate it to you. You know, if you don't have a formal plan, that could be the formal plan. <laughs> the pathway for es- escalation is give them to me and I will help out. Uh, that 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 is uh, one way of leading. Now, a lot of folks, um, that's not. Uh, if you're in a big organization, obviously you can't just do that. If you have hundreds of folks that are under you, it's usually a certain ratio between, you know, customer service professionals and the the next l- layer up. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, you know, the clear escalation path is should be very very clear. Everybody should know who they reach out to. Uh, when a customer question goes uh, beyond what they're able to handle. And so have that clear escalation pathway and uh, make it smooth and transition. Um, Not that, hey, I can't help you. Pierre can help you. Um, You know, hey, I'm unable to accomplish this and it's really important that we take care of you. Uh, And then and prepare that handoff. And that handoff uh, might take a little bit of time to hand it off. I like that, honestly, um, because you're basically reiterating in front of the customer something that's like it would sound something like this. It would say, um, 
G- Jane here is my customer, and she's asking for um, a discount because uh, last time we were in, we um, broke a thing, and uh, somebody said that uh, that we would give her a discount the next time we came through, and that didn't happen on this transaction, and and so I'm unable to override this price. Um, could you help her um, get that discount that we we had committed to her? Uh, I, and I've talked to her about that, and she's 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 very happy if we're able to continue that or, or make that happen. Could you help us with that, Pierre? And of course, that then I'm like, thank you very much. I will take care of that, and then I've got that nice handoff. We've made a positive forward looking what we're going to do statement like we had talked about last time, and now I'm gonna you know take over and override the pricing or do whatever is required to take care of that customer. But again, we're practicing that, that McDonald's uh, drive through communication style of saying what the customer said, making sure that the customer has an opportunity to correct us. If we're incorrect, Uh, we're building agreement. We're using positive language. We're looking forward to what we're going to do as opposed to how we screwed up or something like that. Right. So having that clear escalation path is super awesome. So uh, next one on the list, number 14, is aligning the customer's journey uh, of the touch points, the customer touch points. And uh, a lot of folks have just are kind of discovering this. If you're in a smaller business, if you're in a big business, you know, this is uh, something that you're constantly working through. But every customer, you know, cu- doesn't come out of the blue. The customer experience is part of a larger story, right? They started somewhere and now you are, you know, further along their journey. So the customer actually has a better or more intimate understanding of the relationship that you have than you do uh, because you're just seeing them here returning something or asking us a question or something like that. And, uh, you know, the customer has been, uh, you know, in the store many times or they're a returning customer if they're great or they have, you know, they have worked with you before and previous people. So this isn't just a new thing to them, right? So every customer is part of this journey. And so if you can understand where they're at, you know, from seeing the billboard on the freeway to downloading an app and consider the customer service offering in the context of that entire customer journey, and you'll have better insight into how much, you know, customers know what their goals are, what their interactions may have already been in your business. I make this claim all the time is that sales makes a promise and it's up to the rest of the company to deliver on that promise. The brand makes a promise and then the rest of the company is up to them to deliver on that promise, whether that's installation or service or however you you know perform uh, the product delivery, et cetera. All of that is a promise that you're you're delivering. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why I say you are a promise, because if you're talking to a customer, uh, you're a promise. You're a promise of a brand uh, promise or a, a, a product promise. You're part of delivering on that promise. So uh, I, I believe that to be true. You are a promise. Uh, so I also believe that you're, you know, a promise as a person, as a person, as an individual outside of uh, just from a bigger metaphysical and spiritual concept that we are all promises. Uh, we, we are people that have potential and we are in the journey of uh of executing on that potential. We're trying to live up to the promise that is within us. 
and uh, the part of that journey and and uh, the hustle, if you will, is just continuing down that journey to be the best that we can be to live out the promise that is within us. And uh, so anyway, so that's that's why I say that. And uh, we align to that uh, customer journey by delivering on the promise. So there is almost a expectation, not almost, there's always an expectation that the customer has around that. Like if you go into one of the things I, I learned early on was about this a long time ago. There was a, a store that I worked at, Highland Superstores. I think I've talked about that. And we were kind of a premium brand. Uh, you walked in, we were dressed in a suit people um we had clipboards and we had uh you know very professional the level of professionalism was very high and we competed against what was at the time this was before sam's club was big or anything like that it's a place called abc warehouse which is actually still in business today and if you went into abc warehouse they also had salespeople there but their building was the disaster. It was intentionally grubby. Actually, it was kind of messy. Uh, they would um, put things in pallets right on the floor. It wasn't exactly clean, and it wasn't like all tidy and stuff like that. I wouldn't say grubby, maybe just not tidy. It was kind of messy, but that was part of their brand promise. They wanted actually. It was not by accident or being lazy. That was part of the 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 design of their concept was that they wanted you to feel like you're in a warehouse, like these are pallets and products that just came off the back of the truck. And, you know, we just got a, a few of these and we're just, you know, you were just, uh, you just have access to these just few products and man, you're getting the best deal of the day. And so that's the, the kind of the brand idea that they had around there. So customers always have expectations based on, you know, the environment, the people that they interact with, all of these assumptions, the brand online, the way that it's shown in commercials and in the marketing, the logo, all of this sets some sort of expectation, the color combination, even it's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Um, the, uh, the biology that goes into that, our, our brand kind of connection between even the colors, like we have this association in the United States that blue represents trust and uh, so if we have blue in our logo, we're getting, you know, trust. We, you know, so you look at a lot of the, the bank logos like Chase Bank or, um, or uh, different, different um, restaurants, you know, they, so um, blue is a high quality and it, it, it emotes a quality uh, component with it. So it's really interesting. We have these different impressions that, that customers have, sometimes intentional, sometimes totally unintentional. We're not aware that we actually set those expectations. Uh, but again, understanding that we're aligning the customer service experience with the expectation of the customer. And that is why the guy at Disney looking at his a little cruddy bowl of $12 noodles you know, that didn't align with their expectations. <laughs> we had spent hundreds of dollars to come here today already to come in thousands of dollars to fly down. Um, we've paid 50 bucks to park in the parking lot. Uh, I've taken time off of work with my family. So we're investing a thousands and thousands of dollars and you give me a crummy bowl of, uh, of, uh, of food. And, uh, so it doesn't align with that customer journey, uh, all of the way. So when you have that dissonance, that's when customers are bad. 
Anyways, uh, number 14, next one on the list. What could it be? What could it be? Let's think about it. Hmm. What could be the next one on the list? All right. Next one on the list is creating a customer uh, culture of excellence. And, you know, this is Pierre. This is Pierre. Like I said, some places... That's not their expectation. They're they're not trying to create an excellent customer environment. Uh, I think that this is um, happy employees make for happy customers. Uh, When your customer experience and um, employee experience align in goals, you begin to uh, bring a culture that's around experience. Employees feeling fully engaged and committed uh, to their work. Uh, Customers enjoy a great experience when uh, people are smiling and happy. If they're not smiling and happy and they're grumpy because I'm getting underpaid and this uh, my boss just yelled at me and he treats um, my coworkers different than I get treated and uh, I'm not appreciated around here and all my good ideas get ignored and I could really fix this place if people listen to me, but nobody ever listens to me. I mean, that's the type of thing that you want to completely eliminate because, again, these are these people uh, that are working on the front line. It's really amazing the impact that the lowest paid employee in your company has has the highest impact on customer service. And there is an inverse curve here that goes in that I can, I mean, I will live and die by this statement. This is so true that the lowest paid employees often have the highest impact on your customer's experience. Again, let's think about it from the perspective of our friends uh, at Disney, right? So the lowest paid employees uh, at the at the place are, are the young people that often work in the stores that take the tickets that um, that they're not the engineers that are the Imagineers that are in there building the rides or, or they're the, the people pushing the buttons. They're cleaning the park. All of those folks have the highest impact, quite frankly, on the customer's experience. I've been uh, at Disney and a ride broke. All right, so the engineering obviously screwed up. High paid employees, something didn't work. There was a problem with the ride. Okay, we that's fine. We're all good with that. But if the place is trashy and the person that um, was helping escort me off the ride, while that happens, it's like if they're mean or grumpy and are not nice, then I'm really going to get upset, right? That So it's like they can take a good, a bad situation and either make it worse or they can make it better. And that comes by creating a culture of excellence. And so that means rewarding your employees when they do great. It means helping uh, listen, <laughs> incorporating systems to help them feel like they're part of the solution and part of delivering that. And so uh, in the same way, I'm I'm going to go out and buy it, you know, a uh, an awesome advertisement and a brand experience. And I'm going to invest in, you know, really great uh, folks for my marketing. I want to do the same thing with my employees. I want to invest in them. It's not just pay. It's a culture and culture beats creative or uh, culture beats operational excellence every day. Culture um, people will uh, will if they have a great customer experience because of the culture that will overcome innovation uh, in your competitors every single day. And uh, so that is the thing. There, there's a famous quote, actually, um, uh, by Peter Drucker. Uh, Peter Drucker was uh, one of the 
um, the uh, let's say it was uh, he went into Japan after in the fifties, and uh, he created um, he created a whole bunch of things around customer service and engineering, and he was a, a, a management consultant and educator, and contributed a, a tremendous amount of stuff. Uh, into um, effective executive management and um, uh, and a lot of different things. And uh, so one of the things about uh, culture, uh, he has a bunch of really great quotes about that. If you, um, if you want to do something new, you have to stop doing something old. But uh, his famous one is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And uh, what, what we're saying in, in this is uh, the company's uh, – uh, culture really is what is more important than the business strategy. And that's so true, isn't it? It's so very true, I think, is that, uh, you know, you could have a company that has more innovation or is, you know, great around the corner in terms of uh, creating some awesome uh, new things that they can do and, uh, you know, very innovative down the road. But if their product um, experience doesn't match up, uh, with the promise, then, you know, then you're screwed <laughs> and, and you're screwed and you're screwed. And so if you, you build the right culture, um, you know, you, you end up being really well. And you say this, you know, this is a saying from years and years and years ago, like from the sixties is when, uh, Drucker was around. Um, and so, you know, this, this, uh, this is what happens when you look at all of the the big companies that are super successful, whether that's uh, Apple or a lot of the tech companies, we love the statement. This is something that uh, a lot of people at, at Microsoft, where I, where I work at my day job, and this is a thing that we talk about all the time, is about our company culture of diversity and inclusion and that kind of um, different perspectives. It takes so many different people, you know, to come from different perspectives and different energies and different kind of uh, experiences to be able to develop a, a new solution and, and be super creative because one person just can't do it all and that you can make super resilient solutions when you have a lot of people involved. And so in our organization at Microsoft, culture is the core of everything. And so you're working uh, you know, to uh, include everybody's ideas and, you know, um, kick those ideas around and contribute, you know, and be super transparent about, you know, what you like and what you don't like. And, and it's really interesting and be super respectful and really bridge understanding that uh, you have people because you're building global products and sometimes you only have one or two shots at this. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't land right and uh, then you're kind of screwed, you spend a lot of money um, building something that doesn't work for a, a market. And so, you know, that's one of the things, uh, creating that culture of excellence. And I really like that also, uh, you know, just to have that kind of spirit of excellence, um, you know, as a church kid, somebody that I didn't grow up in the church, but uh, when I was uh, probably 12, 12 years old or so, I went to, I remember going to a giant church in Detroit, Bethesda Missionary Temple, it's been a church for a long time uh, down there um, in Detroit area. And that's where my pastors and, and they came from. And there was just something about that place. It was, um, and I've been this, I've, I've seen this time and time again, where you have this church is in the inner city of Detroit. It's in, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's on the wrong side of eight mile, put it that way in Detroit. And uh, so it's not in the nicest neighborhood. And you have this very mixed, diverse um, uh, uh, set of parishioners that are from all these different areas. And yet, um, even though you didn't have the wealthy people that went to that place, there was just the spirit of excellence. You know, everybody dressed really well. People showed up on time. People were punctual. There wasn't a laziness, you know, to anything that was done. The music ex- was like so wonderful and um, everybody was so courteous and wonderful and uh, the place was clean as a whistle and the the food because it was during convention time um, one of the parishioners there one of the people that went to church one of the members they owned a catering company a really fantastic cake uh, italian catering company and so you know the church uh, uh the food that they had at the church wasn't just a potluck that anybody brought whatever they had it was like a catered meal that you'd have at a fancy wedding reception so like the cannolis they had were just the best and you know just everything was just this it was done just so and um, over the years uh, my pastors set very similar standards for us I'm involved in the worship team I'm involved in uh, putting on a Christmas program every year in an Easter program and even though we're a teeny tiny little church with less than 100 people you know you you go all out for this stuff you know there's a lot of practices and stuff like that and that's that sense of a culture of excellence and so that is infectious actually so if you're trying to not or intentionally create Create a culture of, uh, you know, kind of uh, just accept whatever and, uh, you know, it's not a it's not excellence. Then I think you're you're kind of missing the boat. I think for what people are looking for today at, at any level is somebody who's professional at what they can do uh, in the store that you're visiting or the company and making decisions. And uh, if they don't have the answers, um, they know how to escalate and get the answers for you. So. So, all right, number 16 on the list. What is number 16 on the list? It's a question. Oh, all right. Um, So Pierre's a technologist. I love technology and automation. I have a smart home. I wake up every morning uh, to my, um, my Google alarm clock and I say, hey, Google, give me the daily brief. And um, when, yeah, as you can hear, there's Google in the background. Uh, we got Alexa. I've got uh, you know smart uh, thermostats in my house today. Uh, while I was out, um, I turned the thermostat in the house down to 58 because we had a warm day. And so like I can turn the thermostat. I did that on my phone remotely. Um, I have uh smart fire, you know, smoke detectors in all the rooms of the house. So when I'm away, if the fire alarms go off, I, I see it on my phone. You know, we, we have a smart house. We have a lot of automation uh, that I do in my job. Uh, Chatbots and uh, customer service tools are can be an invaluable way to help customers with straightforward questions and challenges. But they also light up a load of problems when they come and they're not done well because they can overwhelm a customer that's not tech savvy very quickly. I know if my mom goes onto a website and there's a little chat bot or my spouse calls into a call center 
And uh, we've all had this, you know, they have this really complicated, you know, uh, set menu to do this inbound kind of call routing to try to figure out now, do you want to talk to the billing department or do you want to talk to somebody about new accounts? And, you know, none of the options solve the problem that you're looking for. Um, I the other day, I'll, I'll bust on my own company. I was on the website the other day I was looking for. A, uh, a phone. I was looking at the phone. Actually, I have a Surface Duo phone, right? I have this fancy, uh, cool Microsoft phone. And uh, I uh, we didn't have them in the store, the Microsoft internal employee store. So I'm going to go on to our company website, a consumer store, and maybe buy it from there. And I noticed there's two versions of the phone, and there's a $100 difference between the phones. And they're technically the same exact phone. And so one is the Surface Duo, and the other was Surface Duo for business. And it's like, hmm, well, what's the business version of this? And I'm like, it's $100 more. So there's the little do you need help chat bot on the bottom. And I just kept asking the question. First, nobody's here to help you. Okay, well, I this should be a simple database. Like, what is the difference between these two? Like a chart, some sort of like little article that compares why one is $100 when the features are exactly the same. I got nowhere. I got nowhere in that chat bot. And uh, it is, I've been in classes on how to write chat bots. It is not as easy as you think. And uh, so if you're using a chat bot, you know, in, in your website, you have to be super specific in terms of what that thing is going to be able to do and what it cannot do. And uh, self-service tools like knowledge base articles and things like that. If they're not detailed, if they're not maintained, if it's just a one-time project that doesn't, you know, move forward and look at the telemetry as a result of this, these products are actually hurting you when your customers are trying to get a hold of somebody or figure something out. If you make it so frustrating for somebody uh, to get an answer, they are upset emotionally about your company. They don't like you now. <laughs> They're already upset walking in the door. And uh, so, you know, yes, you can use this technology. Yes, it can answer questions. Yes, it can take and pre-fill some things out. Yes, it can um, operate like an operator and redirect an inbound person or a call to the right, you know, queue or the right set of agents. Like, yes, it can do all of that. But if you're if it's not a positive experience for a customer, if they're not walking away feeling like, oh, that was really helpful. I'm glad that I was able to use that system. And they're thinking that it's a negative experience. Well, for goodness sake, what have you just done? You've associated, you know, a customer in need and you've given them a negative emotion like that's not good. That's not a good uh, connection to make. And if you're only looking at the bottom line of trying, how do I reduce customer service calls? If it's uh, that is a bad investment, I'll tell you, you will get beat every day by uh, a company that offers a better experience than you know, so it really uh, what really matters is the most to folks is really feeling like they are heard. All right. And that they have a positive emotional experience. And again, if automation does that, awesome. I have some awesome automation experiences. I, I used I've talked about it before. Delta Airline has a really great automated experience. I am a Delta Platinum, you know, uh, uh, whatever. Right. Delta Traveler. So uh, so then I have my own dedicated line and how it works is I call if it if there's nobody available, it says we will call you right back 
Um, and so you, you know, just hit yes, or you can wait. So I just hit yes. And then about 10 minutes later, somebody calls me back. Hey, Mr. Holsebus, how are you doing? Saw that you called. What, how can we help you? And so that's the kind of service where automation, awesome. Or if you are in a complicated, let's say, um, situation into a telecommunications company, you can kind of get routed around. If I do have a specific billing question or something like that, great. I can hit three for billing and I get to the billing clerk. But if you're using automation, tell me this. Do not keep asking for the same cotton information when you get me on the phone. And who am I speaking with? It's like I just punched in my account code and I told you what my PIN number was and I authenticated. And now this person is asking me for it all over again. It's like going to the doctor. You know, when you go to the doctor, it's like you've seen the doctor. You've known the doctor for 100 years, you know, your entire life. You maybe were birthed by that doctor. And then they ask you, you know, your medical history. It's like, dude, you know, (laughs) don't you know anything about me? It's like they forget everything about you every time you walk in the door. It's part of the doctor culture. I get it. They don't believe it unless it's written down in front of them. Um, So they have to read and review your chart to remember who you were. So it's pretty funny. Anyway, so be smart about your automation. Uh, And if you're using it as a tool to, quote unquote, deflect customers, uh, I hate that terminology because it just invests. It seems to me like an investment against a customer. And um, anytime you invest in a customer, then you get that back in results. But it's like taking money away from a customer unless it uh, helps them and gives them a positive feeling. I'm, I'm not for it. I'm against it. I'm down. Boo, boo, hiss. You know, we're like, no, bad. You know, don't use it. You're going to this is what will happen. Customers will go. Because they're going to find somebody better. They're going to find somebody better. So I always, I find it interesting when I, when I talk to customers about this kind of stuff and they are like, no, nope, we're not going to invest in that. It's like, interesting, interesting. And you just go, you know, I'm shaking my head and I'm like, you're going to get out innovated in about two years. You know, your business is so vulnerable right now. And sure enough, they're gone. You know, a couple of years later, you see, you see, you get your back and uh, they're, they're talking to you about the same thing that, that they talked to you two, three years ago that they said, now nah, we're not going to do that. And I'm like, no, oh, we should have done that. You know, I love that stuff. You kind of feel vindicated when that happens. Anyways, that's funny. Ha ha ha. I'm like, ah, ha. All right. Anyways, so uh, we've got two more, a couple more to do. And then uh, we're going to take a, we'll take a quick break here uh, for uh, our next sponsored message. So we're going to be right back uh, after this. We're going to come back with the, with a few more, with a few more. um, And uh, we'll be right back. And we're back and we're back. Thanks. Thanks again to our sponsor, Anchor. So, all right, here we go. Here's the next awesome idea, the next great, great, great idea. 
is uh, number 18 on the whole, like, what are we going to do? So uh, bring you up to speed if you're just listening now. We're kind of go- going through a bunch of things that a, a customer service management team and the operational leaders uh, can do to uh you know, improve their customer service, like at the end of the day. So it's one thing to, you know, individually coach people. uh, And that is actually number one on the list, providing first class training, you know, uh, so train your folks up, set your standards high, understand a clear escalation path. So everybody knows, you know, kind of what to do next when there's problems, understand where you're at in the customer journey. So align your customer journey touch points up, you know, this is one of those parts of the customer journey where you're the promise. You're delivering on something that, you know, the company that company promised to a customer. They they bought some something. Now we have to deliver on the service side of that. We want to have a culture of excellence in our organization, and that helps elevate everybody. That's in how we um, treat one another internally. That's how we treat one another actually in front of other people, frankly, and how we deal with trouble and how we you know are transparent and honest and how we seek a kind of a diverse and inclusive culture where people are uh, excited about being uh, uh, understood and uh, feel like they're part of the solution and that their opinions matter and that they're bringing their best self you know to their work every day and that uh, we just uh, we do our best we hired these people like <laughs> like we hired them and now we want them to we want them to do their best. We want them to be show up every day, you know, in a great mood. And uh, uh, the day after they get their paycheck, they, you know, you better hope that they're in a good mood. You know, that's when you so you know, make sure that people are getting paid appropriately for the value that they deliver. And uh, be smart about automation. As a technologist, I see this stuff every day. And in many ways, these projects can fail. Uh, they, can, they can really harm your company if they aren't deployed properly, if you don't keep going back and working at it. And uh, so, yes, they can lighten the load of your customer staff. And uh, but it can also really harm. I was at a place this last weekend. I had to go get my tire changed and are my winter tires. It's winter tires here time. And so it's time to switch over to your winter tire. So I was at discount tire and kudos out. If you're on the discount tire team listening to this, you guys rocked it. You guys have one of the very best um, like customer service front ends on a website. I really loved it. And uh, so I set up my appointment online and um, so I have a one hour window. So I show up and and he's like, OK, great. And we, he took me in and um, he took my appointment, didn't have to do any paperwork because I had filled all the stuff out before. So they already have me in their system. And uh, so I just watched the frontline uh, store is like one of the managers, the service manager there for the next hour as people came in on one of the busiest days of the year. It's, you know, the Saturday um, two Saturdays before Christmas. So it's always busy. The place is packed. They have no appointments available because everything is booked this time of year, weeks ahead of time, because people are doing this changeover. Plus they're buying, you know, um, cars and, and stuff like that for winter. So it's really busy this time of year. And, uh, so walking in and getting service is not easy, uh, to do. And so, um, (laughs) this fella, well, first thing was every existing customer that came in, um, he had all of the, you know, all of the tickets and stuff like that behind him. They have these little sleeves that they put that stuff in. 
And because the the system automatically texts and calls people when the work orders are changed and closed, saying, hey, your stuff is ready to pick up, he's not having to make any of the outbound calls and texts. So that's all completely automated in the system. Hey, your, your work is completed. So as soon as somebody in the back checks that box and says, we're done, it you know, prints out the receipt, he sees it there, he puts it in the thing, and the system calls the person that's on record. And then, so when the person walks in the door, he's got their key ready. He kind of knows the next people that are coming in because they've just texted them. So within the next, you know, 10, 15 minutes, people are, you know, kind of come in and get their stuff. And so he's like, hey, Bob, how you doing? He's greeting him like he knows him because it's right there on the slot of paper with the picture of the car. He's there to pick the car up. And uh, so they give him their ticket. And like I'm counting within, I mean, folks are in that store 30 seconds. In the store, 30 seconds, how you doing? Here's your paperwork, here's your stuff. Any questions, it's parked around the corner. Here's some notes. He would read the notes the mechanics had put in the back. Hey, um, you know, these lug nuts were too tight when they were on, so you might want to, you know, whoever put them on before, uh, you know, maybe make note of that. Um, There's a, you know, one of the tires needed balancing, but we covered that for free. So thank you, have a great day. And they're out. And so customer, in and out under 30 seconds, most every one of them that came and picked it up. That's impressive. And that is using automation properly. Um, so up front, I am calling, I'm not calling and setting an appointment on the phone. I'm going online, picking an appointment, self-scheduling. All the stuff is there in place. My car is already listed in the system. They know the entire service history every time they've been in there. And uh, so anyways, I was just so impressed with that. It was really, really impressive. And um And so there you go. There you go. So sometimes that automation can really be helpful because it made it faster for the customer on the checkout and the check-in. People are dropping their car off. Hey, I'm here for service. Same thing. I was here for service. He had me checked in within less than a minute. And I'm telling you, before all of that awesome automation that they had done, you know, that was a five minute affair. You know, he's looking, he's looking you up in the computer. You know, he's typing a lot on the computer. They're typing, they're typing. And then more typing. <laughs> and then some more typing. Okay, it's like, what are you typing? What is all the typing going on? So you need to go and check in the hotel. There's just so much typing. It's like, what is all the typing for? <laughs> oh, I'm registered. Here's my registration number. Why is there so much typing? Anyways, it's so funny. So anyways, be smart about that automation. You know, technology is can be your best friend and it can elevate. But sometimes if it's not done well, it sucks for the customer. Let me tell you, they're going to be sad trombones. All right. So this is where you kind of want to talk about using tools to boost speed and efficiency. So, you know, the uh, you could have the best customer service on the planet, but if they're uh, stuck with slow and laggy systems, then they can't get the information they need when they need it, right? So that's where all that typing is going. And the result really is poor customer service because the biggest value that people have, one is their attention. And so if you take too much time (laughs) to uh, get that information in the system or kind of create whatever, uh, that time, you're not honoring their time and you're not honor. You're losing their attention very quickly. And then they get bored. Then they want to move on. They have other things that they need to do. And so, uh, 
you know, you want you want to use the systems to make it as fast as possible. So that's what it is, is if you can preload systems, if you can have customers register as they come in or pre-register before you talk or something like that. Uh, and that's where it is kind of that integration end to end. Like I mentioned before, what's the worst thing after you put in all your information on that on the on the call center thing, you type in your account number, 47 digit account number and your pin number and your all of that business. Then what happens? Then the first person asks, and you are Mr. Mr. Whom? What is your name again? They can't pronounce your name. They um they have to, it's like they have to enter the whole thing all over again into the system. What's your account number? It's like, dude, I just put the account number in the system. Do you not see that? Nope, but that does, system doesn't tie into the system I'm working on. So that is where you do want to use technology to boost the speed and efficiency of the people doing the work. So that is where it pays off. That's the investment in the customer. You make those systems, you invest that in the customer, it increases the value of the customer. And uh, there's a business formula you can do to apply that. You know, when you start to calculate the value of your customers, the investments that you make in these systems help invest, improve the value of your customer by those investments and how well they're utilized. Uh, Speaking of that, also, one of the ways, number 18 on the list, what is 18? Getting close to the end. But um, that's right. It is measure and analyze customer feedback. So the best way to understand your customer service, it's, uh, you know, to make sure that it's right at the top. That is the best of the best is to ask your customers. You know what? The customers know stuff. And uh, you want to ask you want to ask about how well you're doing. The best person to ask is your customer. The best way to understand if your customer service is good is just to ask your customers. So this gets into the whole thing of doing surveys and using survey questions and uh, all these different things around effectiveness and, and whatnot. And, you know, once you understand which areas you excel at and which ones suck or ones that need to improve, you can focus on specific skills. So there's different ways to tie the service together and to do customer service metrics. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was on one where I had opened up a ticket. And uh, so I opened up a ticket, technical support stuff. So I created a case. And so now I'm talking to an agent about two days later, you know, they get a hold of me and, and we're trying to resolve a technical issue with a system that I have. This is a world that I live in all the time, like cases. I have a case open all the time because I have so many different systems that I'm working in. And so there's always something, you know, that's broken or not working or I've misconfigured it or whatever, right? Some problem that's going on. And so I am pretty happy-go-lucky about this kind of stuff. And so um, so this, this whole one that I had was really a complicated problem because the problem did not exist with me. It was not my problem. I was trying to add a, uh, an, a user uh, into a system that I didn't administrate. And so I had to have somebody kind of do that. And that person that was having the problem, it was obviously a problem with some sort of security setting in either their system or or the back end system that I was trying to administrate. And I didn't have access to the back end to administrate. So I had to you know open up a ticket. So um, two days into this problem, we finally get a hold with somebody that can maybe do something about it. And uh, kind of cl- cl- like delete the person and add them back in. That's basically what we needed to have happened. And so, um, 
so this this person's like, okay, well, I need to get a hold of that other person. Well, great, okay, good. And uh, so you go ahead and do that. You have his contact information. You coordinate that and let me know how it goes. You need to just delete him and add him back in. And then that person will reset their password. All will be good, right? That's the plan. Oh, sure. So I'm going to go ahead and close this case right now. And then I'll follow up with them. And it's like, no, no, you're not going to close the case right now because the case is still open, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I've done with you. Um, but uh, I'll call that guy and get it straightened out. And it's like, no, you will keep the case open until it's you know, completed. And then when it's completed and everybody's happy, then you can close the case. And that's because the reason that this person was doing that, and I fully trusted that they were going to do this, but it's because obviously they're being measured on how long the case is open. And this is common in customer service that uh, when you start to use systems, you get customer service metrics, uh, how long you're on the phone and how long, you know, the um, how long does it take you to resolve a case? And so if it takes too long, that's a reflection poorly uh, on the person, you know, the individual person doing the work. And it shouldn't be that it should not be like that. That's when we get back to the culture part. Um, maybe it is true. Maybe it is true. Maybe the person that takes on an average longer than the average person just is not as effective at their job. Or it could be that they had a sucky or complicated case. And so if our incentive is to get people to our, our agents and our our case management people to um, because we're being measuring their specific agent, um, you know, uh, effectiveness then that person isn't really interested in helping the person. They're interested in getting them off the phone. They're interested, like this person was, in closing the case so his metric wouldn't reflect poorly on the complexity that I had presented. He had a complicated case. And so a complicated case should take longer. And the metric should be that that it reflects that, yeah, this took this guy a long period of time because they obviously didn't give it enough um, in the configuration for myself as an administrator in the system to enough permissions to reset what I what needed to be reset. And so, yeah, that custom, so you get this imperfect kind of impression on what the real problems are when you focus and when you measure people based on like time that it takes to close cases or time that it takes to answer the phones. Because all then they want to do is get people off the phone. They want to give them a crappy answer, transfer them to another person. Um, they want to close the, the case. They don't want to linger and make sure the customer fully understands the result of what they answered is it good? This is does this resolve your problem? So, um, so yeah, we, we want to use this technology to measure and analyze the customer's input and feedback and kind of uh, build these correlations and causalities between the type of case it was and the time that it takes to close, and we can triangulate the specific customer service agent or person and all of that. But, you know, if we've hired passionate, smart people, they're going to do what it takes to take care of customers if they're doing a good job. And that's what's more important than how long it took. You know, if again, back to the whole thing of we're using these tools just to beat people up to reduce the expense it takes to service our customers, then we're in the wrong business. We're at the business of servicing customers. We want to do a good job at that. We don't want to cut people off and we don't want to make an incentive to get rid of people. Uh, uh, as quickly as possible from the cues and stuff like that. So there's a balance in all of that, but I think you understand what I'm saying from my personal opinion. If I'm creating a culture of excellence 
and I'm aligning with my customer journey. I'm not so short sighted that it's, you know, that I need to train my agents to get people off the phone. That's what happens when a company has a profit model that says the customer service is a cost center. It's not a profit center. It's a cost center. So I need to reduce costs. So I have to find ways to make that customer experience suck because I need to reduce the expense. And that is just short-term thinking. If you're in a small business, you're never thinking that way. You're bending over backwards because you're looking at that customer that's walking in the door that they're not walking in the door just the first time. That's every restaurant understands that the customer is always right. So if the food is too cold, even though you put your thermometer in that thing and tested the food and it's hot enough to your, your serving standards, if the customer says it's too cold, it is too cold because the customer doesn't like it that cold. The customer is always right. And so it can't be that way all the time in every business, but but hopefully you understand what we're talking about here. The customer is always right. That is their perception of reality is the reality of their perception. And so that's the world that they're seeing your company through or your organization through. And so if it sucks, they uh, then it sucks. Then it sucks for you because they they are not going to come back. And because uh, that's how they believe and what they believe determines what they're going to do. And so if they don't have better, if they have a better alternative next time, they are not going to choose you again. And so we get all so high and mighty and all fancy schmancy with our measures and analytics and our our, our uh, stuff that uh, focuses on how to reduce our expenses. And we forget to treat that customer just like they should be treated if I owned my own business. So that's what I always think about when I'm thinking about this stuff. If I was had a little teeny shop that did exactly what I'm doing, whether that's computer programming, building a website, whether that's a, a nonprofit, whatever it is. But if I boiled this down to the smallest mom and pop corner store, that attitude of you as a business owner taking care of that customer, that's the stuff that you do. That's how you want to empower your employees to think that think of them like that is your most precious asset. I need that customer to talk about how awesome this place is. So I'm going to bend over backwards to take care of that customer to make sure that they are so happy that they become a loyal customer, not just satisfied. And that's one of the problems with these systems often, too, is they just look at customer satisfaction, not propensity to buy. They don't look at other components about reoccurrence of revenue and things on that order. They just look at that one customer service score. And so we want to retain the customer and get them to come back. So it's like, what's the next action for them and having an understanding of that? All right. Number 19 on the list. What is number 19? All right. All right. So this is, uh, listen closely, listen closely. That's what it is. Number 19 is listen closely. So use these close feedback systems. When you receive customer feedback, it's important. And what you do with that information next is actually more important, actually. So when we talk about closed loops of uh, business feedback or creating a feedback loop, what we are doing is we're saying to a customer, I got your bad your bad review and I appreciate that input. And we, this is what we're doing to create a better experience. So hopefully next time when we get a chance, we are going to do better. 
And this is the reaction that we're going to get. And so, um, again, companies that have that kind of attitude, they do well. They're going to do well. So when you receive that customer feedback, you know, if the customer gave you permission to or you gave the customer permission to say you sucked and this this was disappointing. And then you're able to kind of reach back to the customer and say, I apologize for that. You're right. That was a horrible experience. And here's something to make it right. And so if you're using um, systems that give people feedback, make it a closed feedback loop uh, to let them know that you're implementing a change. And a really, really good company is going to create actually a closed feedback system for customers, like a customer advisory board. I've done this for many of my clients when I was doing consulting work. You create a customer board. And so what you're doing is you're just picking some of your best customers and um, the f- people that are like partners with you, so to speak, like you, they use your product as part of their business maybe. Uh, so they're interested in seeing you succeed in the long term. They don't wanna just beat you up on price. They, they want you to be successful. And uh, so when you get those types of customers, man, you treat that stuff like gold and uh, you can actually create a customer advisory board. And uh, so we do that kind of stuff at the companies that I've worked at and try to set that kind of stuff up, create customer advisory panels and get those focus groups in there every six, nine, six months to a year. You should be having this kind of stuff to get that kind of feedback of how you could do better. Where's the customer going next? What's their experience? What's their expectations? And that'll get you just kind of that direct feedback of improving your effectiveness, especially around uh, retention, uh, because it's one thing to have happy customers and uh, they, you have experience, let's say, 1.0 today. Like, this is my first thing that we built, and it's great. Well, customers are going to buy 2.0 later. And so if you're not moving with the customer's demands and changes around the corner, what they're doing, you will, not, you will have happy customers. You're just not going to retain them. You know, So you'll have customer satisfaction and happiness, but they're going to go buy other stuff because your stuff now is old or not good enough for the next set of demands that they have. And so you wanna create that system so you can keep listening to customers over time and be forward thinking about what's the next thing that they wanna do. And uh, having those systems is just incredibly important, incredibly important. Often we we have this business culture and uh, uh, that we know and the customer doesn't know. And believe me, I work in the tech field. This is uh, this is like uh, this is in, this is endemic in a lot of the culture here. Uh, in in the technology space and you know we we create the future and you know we know where customers are going to be because we're we're creating that next path for them and there is some of that that goes on that's true but um, that is in many ways just an arrogant view of the world and what really customers want is something cool or whatever you know you just want to keep aligning with their uh, changing uh, needs over time and if you're not doing that, you are uh, going to be in trouble. So anyway, that's creating that close feedback loop. Number 20 on the list. This is the last one. All right. So the last one is, like we're saying, creating a close feedback loop. And that the following, the following up of that is listening, understanding, and taking action, right? So that's the process of listening to that feedback 
and the customer's reps feedback. Again, we're on the management team. So this is this is advice to you as business owners and managers of these teams and creating that culture. It's like, dude, listen up, okay? Understand and then do something about it. And so it's one thing to listen. Okay, I'm listening, I'm actively listening and you're feeling heard and that's a feeling and I can give that feeling without actually understanding anything. Understanding, remember, is kind of reiterating what somebody said, maybe in your words, or recharacterizing that or kind of summarizing what was said so you actually understand what is going and then take action after that. So that's the, you know, build that really uh, strong relationship with folks in the team is that you actually did something about the feedback that they get. So um, there is a really great um, uh, couple different folks. Uh, Peter Senge is, is an author that I've really, really enjoyed. And I've actually met him a couple times. And he's a, he's a, a, a professor uh, and uh, I want to say Harvard Business School. But uh, anyways, he's he's been around for a long time and uh, a lot about organizational development. And he says he says it this way. So this isn't my term. And I use it all. I say this at my house all the time to my spouse, actually. You say, what's up, what's so, and let's go. So when we listen, it's just saying, hey, dude, what is up? What is up? What is happening? What is happening? Just give me the 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 information. I'm I'm judging. I'm not judging it. I'm just trying to understand what is up. And then when I say what is so, that is bridging understanding. So that is me characterizing what is what is saying. So one is the set of facts. And the next is what is the implication of those facts? What is the things that, you know, are like I'm getting maybe feedback from my from my customer service people. And they're saying my frontline folks are saying, you know, hey, we need to have we need to do uh, we should do Christmas cards for our folks. We we're not following up with them good enough. And I want to take all the bad um, customers that we had this last year and I want to reach out to them with uh, Christmas gift certificates or something like that. So that is the understanding of what is up. That's the situation. What is so is moving forward to having some sort of action then that we have. So what is up? What is so? And then let's go. Let's go. So that's a good um, good way to think about it. Let's go means, okay, now let's take action. So um, some people want to just go, this is a situation. Let's do something about it. But they're, they're just listening to the facts and they're um, maybe just jumping to conclusions without getting everybody on the board with that change and then just taking action. So it's like, hey, we want to go do this and then we just go do this. It's like, why are we doing this to start with? Is this the best option for us? Let's talk about it. Let's have some understanding before we do that. So listening, understanding, taking action or what is up, what is so, let's go do it. So, you know, people love action for some people are just people of action and so you know let's let's just go do stuff and then but we we just go take action without understanding the implication of that action or considering uh, alternatives or at least making sure that everybody understands the plan a lot of leaders do this all the time they go from here's the situation to this is what we're going to do they they listen to the facts and then they take action but what they miss in the middle is how do i bring my team along with that change helping them on board with the change or rationalize why are we making that change and people go oh okay i get it all right that sounds great i'm behind it i'm behind it 100 percent. so it's it's one thing to listen and it's another thing to take action 
But that part in the middle about what is so or understanding, that is a shared understanding. It's not just up to you as the manager. You have people that have to execute on the Lexigo too. They need to know the reason why we're doing this change or why. There's just that burning, burning kind of part in their heart. Why? Why are we doing this? So if you skip over that and you just go to action, it doesn't seem rational to everybody or it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, they could agree or disagree with the understanding of it. And that's fine. But at least they understand why we're doing something, agree or disagree with it. But this is the reason why we're doing it. And then you go, oh, OK, I get that. I trust that that's a good set of action. Then if they don't have that reasoning or understanding or whatnot, then it's just a mess or they feel then I wasn't included in the decision making process. So that's what you want people to feel like they're included in that decision. If they are not included, then when we get to the action, they're disconnected. Like, oh, I don't I don't think that's a good idea anyways, because, you know, because they're they're cynical. They're disconnected from the reasons why. And so you have to take this methodology or or follow some sort sort of process that allows people to feel like they're part of that. Let's let's go. Let's take action. They're giving you the information but then you're going to rationalize this all all the stuff without their in, input or approval. So it's a really good way to go. So thank you for giving me that information. That's great. How would you solve this problem? What do you think would be the best thing to do for that customer? And put it back on that person to have the creative, use it at that coaching opportunity, model then that change for them in terms of the action. All right, that sounds like a great idea. You know what? Let's take, um, I will take the follow-up call, but you know what? I'm gonna, I would like you to introduce me to that customer and just explain to me what you just explained and then I'll bring the resolution. And then, then everybody benefits from that. The customer is satisfied at the end that they were heard by two people and that something got escalated to a manager and the customer's like, oh, this is great. I really got those guys and they took care of me. And then the person that's on the front line, the front line worker, they're like, oh, man, they got to see and model the behavior, see the behavior modeled, the fix. So they know next time what can be done. And they also feel like, hey, I contributed to this resolution. And you just give that person a thumbs up, like, good job. And uh, so they, you know, now that's when, you know, the thing gets resolved really well in a synergistic way. So what is up? What is so? And let's go. I love this model. I try to model this all the time in uh, my life, in in my family, uh, that, uh, that uh, we, we don't just start taking action without... Um, without having an agreement on the change. So anyways, well, that's this. We're going to get uh, right back after uh, these important, uh, muy importante uh, messages. We've got a whole, uh, we've got the stack of stuff. We're going to do the stack of stuff and then we're going to, we've got some other fun things. So we'll be back right after this important message. We're back. 
it is uh, it's back to hustle is the hack and you are with the chief hacker right now that is uh, pierre halsebus and i am uh, really excited to continue our time today and our discussion as uh, we continue to uh, go down the podcast this week uh, we've got some uh, the the next part of the show as uh, we get into the next part of the show it is the um, well here you go it's the This is my bumper music. It's the stack of stuff. <laughs> this just in. See, I don't, I don't think this. I think this is just too dramatic. I think it's just over the top. It's like I'm going to try these these dramatic bumpers throughout this. This is hilarious. All right, it's it's the hustle is the hack stack of stuff. And uh, what we're going to talk about, Stack of Stuff, we got a couple different things, uh, usually three to five uh, different items in the news. And the stack really, refer- and you can go to hustleisthehack.com. It's right there off the top of the website, it says the Stack of Stuff. And uh, right there, uh, there's all different business insights. And uh, what what is this? Is a kind of sales coaching and tech stuff, uh, things that are happening in the wider economy. And what I like to do is uh, I'm always interested in what's around the corner because I want to be in version one of something. And uh, I want to be able to take advantage of changes that are happening in the in the broader sense of business and uh, be ready for those and then leverage that information. And, and uh, over time, you're, you know, you're kind of winning. It's kind of getting, it's taking high probability shots. Is uh, So, you know, when you watch golf, you know, I like to watch golf. I'm not very good at playing golf, but you always like the tournaments and stuff like that. Anyways, they always show you, uh, you know, for every t- every weekend you'll see you know this week in a pro tournament and then somebody hits a hole in one. They'll always show the hole in one. You know somebody got a hole in one. It's like that is really cool, and you're thinking, man, they, those guys are so good. There's a lot of hole in ones. They're always hitting hole in ones, and it's like uh, you know statistically, <laughs> there was what a hundred people. They played golf. Uh, they had cameras on them. They played golf all week. Um, so every day, eighteen. Um, 18 different, uh, you know, um, uh, holes every day for a couple hundred people for the last, you know, week. And uh, so there's hundreds of shots that are being taken, literally thousands of shots that are being taken. And just statistically, one or two of them is going to land in a hole in one. And so, um, but uh, in golf, they always talk about the high probability shot and trying to take a a calculated risk. And uh, there's like risky shots and then there's high probability shots. That if I shoot it this certain way, like a bump and run, it's gonna I'm gonna flip the ball up onto the green and then it's gonna roll towards the towards the hole, bump and run, high probability shot that I'm gonna get closer. Another uh, uh, low probability shot, if you're not really great at this, is at putting tons of spin on the ball. And so you hit it past the hole and then it draws the, the spin, spin so much that it draws it back into the hole. That's a low probability shot. Or if I, you know, I'm going to shoot a low shot, uh, you know, and it goes into the, and there's a bunker behind, you know, those low probability. Anyways, you have low probability, high probability shots. So I like to look at these as taking high probability shots. If you you fit this, these kind of models and you kind of get a little better sense of what is a good at probability. Plus there's also just other rando stuff along the way uh, that, uh, that uh, comes along, that <laughs> comes along the way. So broad shifts, like last time we talked about how 
uh, getting rid of IT departments is actually becoming a big thing. Like now, because we have people working out of their home, they go to Best Buy, buy a computer. And if your business application's online, uh, then uh, do you really need an IT department there? What What is the need of the IT department? If they're not delivering additional business value around strategy and stuff like that, then uh, you know, are they working themselves out of a job? And that might be true. Is it time to get rid of some of those IT people? And uh, it's interesting, interesting, interesting ideas. Um, Elizabeth, one of the big things that's happening right now, um, I'm always fascinated by fraudulent salespeople and kind of sociopathic uh, people as a uh, personality trait. And I can't think of a bigger social sociopath right now in the public than Elizabeth Holmes, who is the founder of Theranos, and her her trial continues, and she's actually on the the on the the, the stage, so to speak. So that, we talked about that a couple times. We talked about uh, one that I thought was really interesting as Riot Games. You know, there was a world champion uh, viewers on Riot Games is. Uh, you know, there was about 70 million people that watched uh, the Riot Games finals globally. Like that was bigger than the Olympics this year. And that was an online uh, e-sports game that nobody that's over 35 or 40 knows about. It's hilarious. 75 million people watch that final. You know, at the same time, um, if you look at like CNN, which is one of the most influential news organizations in the world, uh, they have about uh, a daily total half a million people watch that 75 million people tuned in to watch a video game being played um, at the same time as a average uh, 180,000 people are watching um, CNN. It's, I think that's interesting. That's a big change. Like that's something to take note of. Like our young people are much more interested in uh, cool stuff <laughs> than the CNN is not as influential. Anyways, so a couple a couple things that are happening right now, what's happening, obviously, is we have at the same time, there's three, there's like two things happening at the same time. Uh, jobless rate uh, sank. Uh, there's an article in MarketWatch, the jobless rate sinks to 184,000. It's the lowest since 1969. So 52 years, we have the lowest unemployment in the United States right now, this, this last time. Now, they um, adjust the unemployment number all the time it's it's uh it's a really interesting formula actually i did work for michigan works uh who does the runs the unemployment department here in the in michigan um they ran a bunch of my software and i spent a lot of time working with that organization and they're the ones that you know produce these numbers here in in michigan and uh, so it's really interesting to see the formula and how it's all how kind of the back end of it works there's a lot of seasonality and it's really who's available to work so you know uh, you have students that during the summer can work, but, you know, during school time are not available to work. So those numbers change up and down and people go re- into retirement and those happen in waves. And it's really interesting, just really, really interesting. But the jobless claims right now are down to 184,000 people. There's 184,000 um, people that are without a job this last week that were looking for a job. At the same time, 14 million people in the last like nine months have quit their job. And a lot of people are like quitting jobs. And so there's this big like thing that's happening, this kind of myth around uh, white collar burnout or um, people are, um, you know, just uh, getting out of the workforce for, for forever 
uh, and it's a phenomenon. It's the great resignation. It's kind of a phenomenon that's a, it's a once in a lifetime situation. It's all because of COVID and all of this kind of stuff. And it's really about people quitting their job. They're kind of going down the, the road of just, you know, um, quitting, I'm calling the big quit. And that's just not true. Uh, that's not true. What is happening? It's much more the, um, uh, it's the big shift. It's the big switch is what's happening. People are moving out of their crappy jobs into better paying jobs. And uh, what that's leaving is a huge uh, part at the bottom. And just a lot of it is just because we have a, a lot of young people that are, um, you know, college educated that are like, we're done with working at McDonald's and now we're going to go work at, you know, we're going to get real jobs and uh, all these tech companies and all of these manufacturers that need high paying tech, tech jobs and like management jobs to manage all of this new technology and, and kind of business jobs. That's where so much of the growth is happening. People are just shifting and quitting from one job going to better jobs. And so if you are looking for a job right now, Know your value in the market right now. Right now, nobody, it's very hard to find people. So you are in, that makes you such a valuable asset. There's no, no, uh, no mistake why there's more like John Deere employees and Kellogg employees are on strike right now because of their value right now in the current marketplace there it's hard to replace it's not like you can just go and replace all these people um, with these jobs and there's lots of people in these places looking for work because they're not they're not they're not looking for work and so if you're looking for work right now you want to know your value you want to know your value in the market you want to go out onto places like indeed or levels.fyi, you can find out what those jobs pay historically in the market. And you want to take that number, add, you know, 10%, 20% to that. And that's where you want to be going for. And don't take the first offer they put in front of you, you know, say, you know, I think I can do better than this right now. Don't be pressured into um, having multiple offers at the same time and kind of going, hey, I have to take the first one. Do not be desperate. You are a valuable person. And so you want to get what is worth in the market. Statistically, my friends that are minorities, women, especially women minorities, it has been shown in the market what you guys or gals often do is take the first offer. And so it's just a job hunting skill. You're like, oh, I'm not really great, or you might not feel like you're super qualified for this. And uh, so, but uh, if if they're giving you an offer, you're qualified. Believe me, if you have an offer in front of you, you have passed the test. You are qualified for that position. So now the next part of that is negotiating your salary, negotiating your pay. And so that next thing that you want to do is focus on what the value of that is and know it before you get there. And so that is just one thing. People discount their own skill set and their own value all the time. You're discounting that. And that's what I'm telling you. You are a promise. You were created for so much more than you're doing. And so let's go for that next level. And so let's let the company sweat it out, put some pressure on them because it's not like they have 49 people um, lined up behind. You got the offer. So now the offer is now we're in the negotiation part of it. So look at it like a sale. You are selling your skill set. 
And so, you know, you're negotiating the price now. of What is the value of that? We've determined you're qualified. We want you for this position. Here's what we think we can do from a value standpoint. Do not in that world take the first offer. Take the first offer. You can negotiate additional time like like vacation time. Say, hey, I I am leaving my other position for this. I have three weeks of or a couple of weeks of extra vacation that I'm walking away from. Can I bring another two weeks? Can I get two weeks off of pay, uh, paid leave off this year on top of what you're offering me? And that's a way that's a, a thing to negotiate um, is is paid time off. Um, instead of just getting a higher wage. So if you're like, hey, I got kids, I want to take a nice vacation this summer, you know, you can negotiate time off. Companies are more likely to do that, start you at a higher time off. Or I want a signing bonus instead of giving you a raise. I, I want 10 grand to sign up, you know, because I'm walking away. My next pay increase in my last job is going to be $4,000 a year or whatever. I, I want to get that now. So I want to see that $4,000 on top of this. Or this isn't much more. As a point of reference in the United States right now, you can get a job at McDonald's for 15 bucks an hour, 15 to $20 an hour. You're working in a manual labor job. So if there's any sort of skills that you're bringing, you know, you're, you want to start up in there at 25 bucks an hour and, and higher. And uh, so if you're bringing some skills to the table, so know your value, don't take the first offer. And the other part of understanding where we're at in the work situation is that every company is having this problem. And so if you sell a product right now, if you're selling a product and if it is not connected to productivity, increasing people's productivity, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat because right now companies have the hardest time finding people. There is only 180,000 people that are not um, working. To put this in perspective, a company like Microsoft or Google or Facebook easily annually receives over 1 million job applications and resumes a year. So 180,000 is like 0%. It could is just as easily be zip. I mean, a company, um, it, it will, would make the news, but it's not un, uncommon, let's say, for a company like to open a new facility or close a new facility that um, then there's thousands of jobs that are associated with that. Um, IBM could make one change in a division and that's 20,000 people that would take or not take a job. A good example of this right now, last week on the stack, one of the things that's in there is GM's going to form two new partnerships that are going to create new factories in the United States. This right here, uh, they're, they're two new uh, partnerships for raw material to be used in electric vehicles. And I'm telling you, EV is the way. This is what's going to happen. There's so much supply chain problems that are going to happen as a result of this. And so they are um, starting with MP Materials, which is going to help them with the electric motors in their Hummers and the Cadillac Lyric, the Silverado, the EV pickups, uh, more than a dozen vehicles that are going to be on their uh, platform starting in 2023. That means that there is going to have a um, 200,000 square foot facility and uh, they're going to produce all of the alloys and magnets to power 500,000 EV vehicles a year. That is thousands and thousands of jobs that are going to be part of that supply chain that do not exist today. 
And so if I'm selling into General Motors, it is all about productivity. It's not about reducing their cost. It's not about making this less expensive. It's much more, they're going to, like the purchasing department will tell you that, like that's part of their job to beat you up on the price. But (laughs) the real business driver is all about reducing um, people's uh, increasing their productivity or kind of how many people it takes to build something or do something that every time you are offsetting that you're making it that company less vulnerable to this lower wage problem. And this is not going to go away. This is going to continue is going to continue because this is the big shift. We are at the beginning of a giant shift that's going to happen in manufacturing here in the United States. COVID showed the U.S. one thing really important is that our supply chain is a mess. We have been just focused on cost. And the problem with just focusing on cost is that we, you know, our supply lines are so fragile then during COVID. And so the fragility and risk in having our all of our medical devices manufactured, for example, all of PPE stuff at the beginning of COVID was coming from China because it's the cheapest place to get you know, masks. And so as soon as the, the demand for PPE um, went through the roof, now all of a sudden there's no, we call, there's no PPE places here in the United States. As we move uh, from um, equipment and manufacturers being more of a computer than an actual car, like a, a Tesla is much more of a computer on wheels with electric motors in it than a car. So it's like a Lego league, almost like a Lego car. It's a fancy Lego car. But the computer brains inside of that is so sophisticated. And that, that is what at the heart of what that vehicle is. And so um, what that means is all of a sudden we need way more chips than we ever needed before. And so what's happening is we've got not enough chip manufacturers here in the United States. We can't secure that. So what happens in the last Build Back Better comes a $5 billion of that money is going to go to help the federal offset federal taxes for bringing um, uh, chip manufacturing into the United States. And instead of South Korea being the world leader in chip manufacturing, guess who's going to be that? Texas. So (laughs) Intel and and uh, all these companies are moving into um, the southern part of the United States where the climate is clean and they're able to have a really great workforce and the states are giving them tax breaks to come and build these giant chip factories and build integrated circuit factory, um, what they call fabricators or fabs, these fab manufacturers. Uh, those are billion dollar factories. And so this is a, a giant shift that's going to happen uh, as the, the tech uh, takes the lead in our manufacturers and uh and on a high note well on a low note i'm going to start on a low note because you know i'm i talk about uh, uh music all the time and i love music i'm a musician i play in church at a, uh, was a you know studied uh, uh music and a little bit in college and sang in choir and grant sang for the grand rapids symphony and the giant barbershop chorale here and um, I love that stuff, but uh, there is uh, there's a musical that's coming out this uh, up in the next couple of weeks, the Steven Spielberg version of um, the Romeo and Juliet <laughs> rewrite of uh, West Side Story, right? That was the Rodgers and Hammerstein. Uh, but guess who was a big part of that? Who was just learning his trade then was Steven Sondheim. And uh, St- he went on to write 
just some of my very favorite music. Uh, one of my favorite musicals is uh, Sweeney Todd, and he wrote all the music for Sweeney Todd. It's just one of my, it was just so lost in that music of that and how how it's so, let's say, um, sad and yet promising. It just has all this mixed emotions in it, and his music is just so wonderful. Into the Woods, all of these awesome movies, Company, um, there's just so many musicals this man um, did, and he he passed away here a couple weeks ago, and it's it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad to see him go. Um, he was he had actually um, he was quite elderly, believe it or not. He had he had done so much, but he was a big part of writing West Side Story, Gypsy company as we said he learned the craft from oscar hammerstein who was the the you know had rogers and hammerstein you know wrote like my fair lady and all of this kind of stuff um and uh these different awesome broadway musicals and he was like a like a learn from these these uh these folks and uh it's kind of sad miss we're gonna miss uh his music um send in the clowns uh, losing my mind, being alive, not a day goes by. All of these wonderful into the woods um, um, assassins is the last one that he he did, and um, it's just pretty amazing, pretty amazing. So kind of sad to see him pass. I I just loved all of that music that he did, and uh, but to end on a high note, end on a high note, Mister Pop Tart who lives in my hometown, Grand Rapids, Michigan, reflected uh, recently on his creation because the Pop-Tart reached uh, uh, 90, or uh, let's see, 52 years old. It was 1964 uh, when he started the Pop-Tart. No, that's way, way more than that. It's like 58. That's as old as me. It's one year older than me. So it's 58 years ago. The Pop-Tart came up 57 years ago. The uh, Pop-Tart hit the stores in November of 1964. And Mr. Pop-Tart lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, he created the Pop-Tart. And uh, the thing is, that's kind of cool about the Pop-Tart he, that he did. Uh, he's 94 years old. Uh, Bill Post uh, has a lot to be proud of. You know, he's got grandkids and all this kind of stuff. He, he answered the telephone and Kellogg's asked if they could come and see some of our equipment. And he said, yeah. There, uh, they came and they looked at their plant and they wanted to do something uh, for the toaster, but didn't know how to do it. The um, plant was the plant manager for Keebler, and uh, Keebler is here in Grand Rapids. That's a it was a cookie company, and he worked there. He was, he ran the plant there, and uh, we knew how to make you know cookie doughs and stuff like that, like a cracker. But and they had to put the filling in between, and so that was one of the things that they were basically you know if you look at the way the pop tart is kind of a cracker on the bottom and then another pastry on the top and then filling they didn't pump the filling in so they had a you know so that was one of their inventions that they did but the whole trick of the pop tart is the frosting on the top because if you put the frosting in the toaster it you know it it melts and so in the toaster in the pop tart it doesn't melt there's some sort of strange science going on there who knows he probably will take it to his grave of what kind of cement or something that they put in there. And uh, his kids loved it. Those were his test audiences. His his son was 13 at the time, and they used to bring home the products, and they said whether they didn't like it or not. And as soon as the kids liked it, then they were ready to go. And uh, then, then they brought him to school, and it all started there. They called them country squares at the beginning. That didn't kind of work. Uh, 
And uh, so there you go. They made the Pop-Tart, and he's got he's in the Pop-Tart Museum there, Mr. Pop-Tart. He's in, even got his Pop-Tart, um, uh, what, Pop-Tart socks on there. So um, he finished 40 years working at, uh, at, uh, at Keebler Kellogg's here. It's interesting. It's one of those products, Kellogg's. I always think of Kellogg's when I travel. Because Kellogg Cornflakes is uh, like all over the world. I, there was this article once in a Wall Street Journal, and they had pictures of breakfast all over the world. And so people just, um, what their groceries for breakfast were for one week. And so they had their family, a picture of their family, and then they had all the food that they had there for their breakfast. And it was really interesting to see different people around the world. And the common theme in breakfast was cornflakes. Cornflakes is Global. It is. It's the number one branded cereal, and it's made here in Michigan, just down, around the corner, down the street, and around the corner, uh, down there. How many? How many? I uh, wonder how many they make. I wonder. I wonder how many they make. A lot. I probably have to check Wikipedia. That's probably what's up. Anyways, hey, that's the stack. Pop tarts. Pop-Tarts and uh, <laughs> Pop-Tarts and customer service. That'll be our podcast for today. So anyways, my name is Pierre Hulsebus. I hope you just have a wonderful day. And I will say it again. I said it before. Customers are king. And uh, whoever dies with the most of them wins. And it's all about keeping them, acquiring, identifying, and retaining that thing that is the most valuable asset that you can have. And let me talk about you for a second. I said it before. I say it again. You are a promise. You're a possibility. So keep on hustling. And what that means is you just have that spirit of excellence about you. Show up every day. Be faithful, available, teachable, and you will succeed in this whole thing. That is the hustle. I'll talk to you later. Have a blessed week.